So once again, church, this morning we are beginning this new series together, and it is called Understanding the Gospel. God rescues us by grace through faith. And in this series, what we'll basically be doing each week is we're going to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, back and forth each week, with the goal of seeing how throughout the Bible, what the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the center of all Christianity actually is. And really, we're going to see how specifically throughout the whole Bible, meaning way before Jesus, Jesus came, and then when he came, and then after he came, how throughout all that, we're going to see the message is essentially the same. That the living God is the Savior, the, the rescuer, that, that we need saving and deliverance and rescuing, and that God has really provided for what we need by his grace alone. Meaning we don't deserve it, nor do we earn it. And then finally, in response to what God has done, we trust him. And then it only makes sense to love him and live for him. And so that's the series we're going to be in together this fall. But that only leads us specifically to this story, though, here in 2 Kings 5. And so as you heard in the scripture reading, this is a story from the Old Testament, which took place during the times of the Israelite kings and kingdom. And this story is mainly about that Syrian man named Naaman. And hearing that story throughout that scripture reading, you might have heard it and thought it maybe seems a little strange for this to be the first passage that we go over in this series on the gospel. And it's true in many ways this is an unexpected passage because yes, this passage isn't as explicitly about the gospel of Jesus Christ as other passages are. And yes, there's a lot of unique things in here. Plus, it's from the Old Testament narrative books and it took place at a semi-random time in Israel's history, probably around 850 BC. But all that said, the reason it's in God's word and why we're going over it this morning is that, yes, although this may not be a typical gospel passage many of us think of as, at first, yet when we really look into it, this does show us a lot about what we mean when we say that we are saved by grace alone. And therefore, it's a really important passage that sheds a lot of light on the gospel of Jesus. And you'll see more what I mean by that as we go. But all that said, so we're in 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 19 this morning. And as for our outline for how we're going to go through this whole story, we're going to go through it verse by verse, verse, but mainly three sections together in three sections. And as for what they are, first we're going to begin in verses 1 through 8. And there we're going to see the introduction to the story, the main characters and what happens there to begin. And we'll apply that to the gospel and then ourselves. Which in second will lead us to verses 9 through 14. And there we're going to see the climactic and central part of this story, which really displays the gospel of grace itself. And we'll see how that applies to us. Which in third and finally will lead us to verses 15 through 19, where we'll see the main character, Naaman's response to what happened to him. And so that's where we're going, the story in three sections. First, the introduction. Second, the main thing that happened. And third, the response to what took place. But all that said, let's then dive in and begin this story in our first section then, church. And for this again, just verses 1 through 8 to start, and we're going to see the introduction to this story. And to cover even this, we're just going to take this in a bunch of steps, reading a part of the story and then making some quick comments, and then we'll come back and apply it to the gospel and ourselves after. And so let's start just with verse 1 only, just with verse 1. The story begins like this. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, Syria, was a great man 
with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So the first word in this whole story is that main character's name. His name is Naaman. And who is he? Well, he's the commander of the Syrian king's army, which is a big deal. And he's a mighty man of valor, but he also was a leper. And two quick things are interesting on that. Two two things. First, Naaman being a leper not only sets the stage for all that's about to happen, but in this one verse alone then, we see that he's a Syrian, meaning he's a non-Israelite, he's a Gentile, not one of God's people, and he's particularly unclean, not only as a Gentile, but as a a leper to the Israelites. And yet, God is going to do something amazing to this man. And the second on this, also notice, I think the most fascinating part of verse 1, you look closely here, is that Naaman is said to be, quote, yes, a great man with his master and in high favor. But why is he even like that, according to verse 1 here? Well, God's word says, quote, because by him, by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. You see that? And really, that's an amazing thing because that's just a quick comment in God's word here. But even that alone shows us, brothers and sisters, that God is working in his world in so many ways for his ultimate glory more than we can imagine. And here we should already see that the Lord God, in a sense, was already at work in Naaman's life even prior to this story, guiding him to this point, even though Naaman didn't even know the Lord. And so that's just verse 1. Which is us next in the story to verses 2 and 3. So now look down there. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So on that, in brief again, the Syrians at one point apparently had carried off this little Israelite girl. Which, let's just be really clear, that is kidnapping. That is evil. We're supposed to see it that way. That's not right. And yet, as for this little Israelite girl, it's fascinating because it seems that she genuinely knows the Lord God of, of Israel. And she clearly, therefore, is a blessing to those around her. And we see that here in how she's the one who initiates this idea with Naaman's wife where she, she knows that if Naaman were to go to this prophet which means somebody who genuinely worked for God and spoke for God, she knows that if Naaman were to do that, then he could be cured. Which leads us next in the story to verses 4 through 6. And now we see what Naaman and his lord, the king of Syria, do once they hear that. And so look down verses 4 through 6. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the, the king of Syria said, Go now. And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So so think about it. All that makes total sense from their perspective. Because knowing that perhaps Naaman could be healed, what do they do? Well, first, they begin by deciding that therefore the king of Syria is going to write a letter to the king of Israel. 
Right? A letter of one important person writing to another really important person. And then second, they also then send this letter along with a bunch of gifts. And why do all that? Well, because again, that's just, that's just natural, right? I need this something done. And so please read this letter and realize who I am. And then of course, please accept these gifts. <laughs> these gifts, but really, these are sort of an exchange for what I want done to me. So that's Naaman and what the king of Syria do, which now needs next to verse 7, which is a little interesting twist in the story. And so they send all that to the king of, uh, king of Israel, who just so you know, was King Joram at the time. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible, King Joram was not a good king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He led the people away from God. But still, remember, understandably, Naaman and the king of Syria didn't think about that. And so they sent this letter and the gifts to King Joram. And what does he do? We'll now look at verse 7, continuing on. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel does two things there, two things. First, he tears his clothes and he does that because, in short, that's what they did back then out of honor for God if they thought God was being blasphemed. And now, we don't really know if Joram did that because he genuinely cared about God's honor or not. But either way, so Joram does that. And then second, and more important, Joram at the end of verse 7, though, ultimately reveals what he's definitely concerned about. And that's how he says, quote, only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. And that then shows us that it seems that Joram didn't mainly care about God and his glory as much as he just didn't want to quarrel an argument or maybe to even enter into a war with the Syrians. And so that's verses 1 through 7, which finally on our first section here leads to where things start to change a little bit in verse 8. And so finally on this first section, look there, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes... He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So, so I include this in our first section because this is supposed to be a contrast to Joram's response. Because Elisha is actually and is called a man of God. And, and what does he say to the king? Well, basically he's like, why did you tear your clothes? <laughs> And act like that. Let him know that there is a prophet in Israel. Meaning Naaman is right in seeking the living God. And so let him know there is hope. And that hope here is represented by Elisha. Who is someone who truly does work and speak for the living God. And so that's our first section in the story here at church. And that all sets the stage for what's about to happen. But for us, before we do even move on though... Even just so far, I hope we do see that and even just the setting the stage of that, there are a lot of gospel truths in there. There are a lot of gospel truths in there. For example, notice Naaman here is someone in need of healing, right? Of rescuing, of deliverance, whatever word you want to use from something. And he's unable to do it himself. And I hope you know that throughout the whole Bible, that's always the initial step in God's good news of grace. It's realizing that we genuinely have this issue with us, this, this deep-rooted problem where we know that something's not right, which the Bible calls our separation from God, which stains us very similar to leprosy. 
And the truth is, for each and every one of us, we we cannot move on to understanding the gospel at all or trusting or loving Jesus really unless we first realize and know that we need forgiveness and change. And so that's a gospel truth here. And then there's another gospel truth when we see that notice. After hearing that there's this prophet, yet as for how Naaman and the Syrian king first go about to get that healing, their initial impulse and this is the impulse in all of our hearts naturally, is they then turn to doing a lot and giving a lot of things. Right? They make it something where they want to prove that they're important enough or good enough to deserve the help. But as we see, that, that's not the gospel. That's not grace. That's never how God works. We, we cannot ever coerce God to be gracious. That doesn't even make sense. The Bible never says God helps those who help themselves. Never. And then finally, as for the last gospel truth in this first section here, notice that even throughout all this, yes, Naaman is seeking his healing, and yes, he is traveling with this letter and all these gifts, but even more fundamentally, why is Naaman even doing all that? Well, as you can see, it's because really, behind the scenes, it is God who is sovereignly guiding Naaman to this point in all this. It's amazing. Verse 1, think about it. The Lord was already working through Naaman before this story. And then the Lord God of Israel uses this little Israelite girl to bless Naaman's life. And then when Naaman takes his letters and gifts and goes to the king of Israel who can't help him, God still doesn't stop pursuing him. But then God sends Elisha. And really that's an ultimate gospel truth here as well because all behind all of this we now see is God himself. And quickly, just for you and me, I hope you know that is a gospel tr- reality, gospel truth that we sometimes don't talk about enough. But the truth is from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we need to know the gospel isn't only good news because it is the way that we can be rescued and saved by God's grace and love. That's obviously true. But in addition to that, The gospel is also so good because it also includes the fact, like we're seeing in this story, that it's God himself who works in our lives and even guides us to embrace his good news. God is that loving and that involved in our lives. And so for us as Christians, we should know that and look at our lives and give God God the glory for that. And then finally, perhaps for some of you in here who maybe don't truly know Jesus personally yet, Perhaps you feel him guiding you to him and his gospel of grace, maybe really for the first time even this morning. So that's our first section of the story. It's not least the second. And now here we're going to be in all of verses 9 through 15. And this is where the gospel of grace will become even more plain. It's beautiful. And for this, again, we'll take it step by step to understand what's going on here. And so in verse 8, Elisha, the man of God, is a glimmer of hope for Naaman. But what happens next? We'll now look where we pick up or pick up where we left off in verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. We'll stop there. So, so apparently Naaman hears somehow that he should have gone to Elisha, not King Joram. And therefore he decides to travel to Elisha's house. And so he traveled all the way there. Imagine it. He's standing at the door of Elisha's house, which then leads to the strangeness of what happens next in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So to begin on that notice, Elisha doesn't even go out to see or talk to Naaman. 
Naaman's on his doorstep. He's traveled that far, and yet Elisha sends a messenger to him on purpose. And he does this first because Elisha wants it to be clear it isn't about him. Because think about it, Naaman is a powerful and important man who's done and can do a lot of things. He might really think that his answer to what he needs is another really important, powerful man who also could maybe do a lot for him. But Elisha, by not even going out to Naaman, is, clearly wants Naaman to know, nope, Naaman, it is not about Elisha. And then second, Elijah also doesn't go out to Naaman because he clearly wants to humble him as well, which we're going to come back to in the next verse. And so Elisha doesn't even go out to Naaman, but not only that, but then concerning what he says to Naaman, and this is the center of the whole story, so Naaman travels this far, he's looking for a miraculous healing from his leprosy from this prophet, and yet what does Elisha tell Naaman to do? Well, you know, he tells him to simply go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, that's it. And seven there just represents this number of completion or perfection in the Bible. Plus, it was also how many times the lepers in the Old Testament law would be sprinkled with water to be clean. But most important in that is not the number seven. But it is the fact that that's all Elisha, through his messenger, after all of this, tells Naaman to do to cure his leprosy. Just, just go to that normal river and get in the water. <laughs> Which then leads Naaman next in the story to respond the way he does. Verses 11 and 12. So look there now together. Verse 11 and 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Alna, Albana, and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So Naaman's angry. And why? Well, obviously a couple big reasons. Number one, notice the first thing he actually says is, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. In other words, he's thinking, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm important. I've done a lot to get here. Surely this man could have at least come out to me. But again, Elisha did this because he wanted Naaman to know it isn't about Elisha. And now we see clearly, again, Elisha also wanted Naaman to know. And Naaman, it is not about how important you are either. And so first, Naaman is angry about that. But then also, second, you can see Naaman is also angry that Elisha didn't do some big gesture, right? And quote, wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. And instead, Elisha just told him to go into the waters of the Jordan and wash. Which Naaman knows they're just normal river waters and they're no better or more able to cure leprosy than the rivers in Damascus. Right? So that's these verses. And just take a second and really think about it. The story could have totally ended there. Because really, Naaman is said to have went away. So Naaman rejected the good news here. Just like many people today still reject the good news. Maybe like in your life, you've only ever rejected the good news. And so the story, Naaman's story could have just ended there. But in God's grace, it doesn't. God is still pursuing this man, which then leads to the next step in the story. And for this, now let's just continue in verse 13. But his servants, Naaman's servants, came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? 
So, so, so just like that little girl from verse 2, so now these lowly unnamed servants are the people that God uses to direct all important and powerful Naaman to not only be healed of his leprosy, but to really, I think, have Naaman's soul saved forever. It's amazing. And what do these servants say? Well, basically it's, why wouldn't you try it? And not only that, but the servants call Elijah's instructions. You can see it, a good word, a great word, just like good news. And they summarize it as, look, all you need to do is quote, wash and be clean. It's that simple. The good news is that good, Naaman. Which finally on this section leads to verse 14 where it finally happens. Look at your Bible, verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So Naaman humbles himself and goes and dips himself in the Jordan River seven times all quote according to the word of the man of God according to what God has said and what happens boom right away his flesh is restored and he was clean. And, and that Brothers and sisters, that's our second section. That's really the central part of this whole story. And hopefully you can sense it. That then is a big symbol of the true gospel of the true gospel. And, and how is it? Well, just to be clear, so we all see it and we're all on the same page together. Let's just now take a, a few minutes and break down what in the world just happened there with Naaman. And so what just happened to Naaman and how does it apply to, to you and me and the gospel of Jesus and of grace? And quickly, before we actually even answer that, let me just say, what we are about to talk about for a few minutes is why this is one of the best stories in the Old Testament to show the gospel of grace. But it's also something that shows us that this is really different than anything that the world has ever really produced. And to be honest, this is, this is something that we'll talk about that you and I in this room might be used to. As many of us here are, are Christians already, praise God. And as all of us, even if you're not personally a Christian, all of us are in a culture that has been very influenced by Christian ideas of things like love and grace. And so what we're about to talk about, we might say, yeah, we know this and we're used to this. But I want you to know what this shows us and what this teaches is basically different and more unique than anything in the world. Different and unique compared to the thinking of basically any secular society and also different and unique compared to any other religion that has really ever existed. And I challenge you to really think about this. It's beautiful. And so you'll see what I mean. But the question is, okay, so what just happened with Naaman? And how does this apply to the gospel of grace? Well, first, to begin, what's initially so striking about this story is that Naaman, in a way, assumes and does things that make a lot of sense. And totally fit in the way that we all by nature usually think of things. Meaning, think about it. He understandably thinks that these letter, this letter and his gifts will help him get this healing. And he understandably thinks that the person to go to would be the powerful king of Israel. And then when he finds out that it's actually Elisha, he understandably thinks that it's about the powerful man Elisha who can help him be healed. And then finally, he understandably thinks that if this is really going to happen, then man, this, this really important Elisha will do something and it's a good thing. Thing that Naaman is really important. It's a good thing that he has these gifts, that he's traveled so far, that he's done his part. And quickly, if you're following along, all that kind of thinking is basically the way that the world we live in thinks. That's how we all naturally think. And really, that's the default thinking of basically every other worldview and even religion and philosophy besides true Christianity and the gospel. 
It really is. And this is why the Christian gospel was and is still unlike anything else. Because for the world we live in and how we think of naturally and for any other religion, when we think about finding a solution to what's wrong with us, especially the biggest thing that's wrong with us, we think of all those things that are basically represented by Naaman here. We think those are what really, really matter. Right? In religions, you are heard by the gods because you are so obedient or because of how much you give to them or because of how important you are. In our culture, the idea is, yeah, you can have peace if you're successful, if you make your own way. You can have happiness if you do this or that. It's all mainly dependent on us. And quickly, let's just be really clear. This thinking is even the case in some so-called Christian large institutions and churches. Because even many churches and so-called Christian institutions, even in the name of Jesus, they essentially can, can teach the same thing that's represented by Naaman. Because sure, they might use the word grace and often use the word Jesus, but Jesus himself teaches us that there'll be people who use his name who do not know him. And so more important than that is what do they really believe about the living God and his gospel and grace? Because unfortunately, when you break down the beliefs and what they're teaching of many so-called Christian churches or institutions, it still can be about how important you are, how obedient you are, how high up you are in the institution. It's about doing things enough, confessing enough, going to church enough, giving enough to, to do what you do. And, and, and then in return, you get God's grace and you're okay with God. And again, we see all of that symbolized with Naaman here and his approach. But then, Elisha, God's actual spokesman, totally surprises Naaman. He baffles his worldview, and our worldview, if we naturally think like that. And how? Well, first, again, by not going out to Naaman, again, showing it isn't all about all-important Elisha, and it certainly isn't about deserving Naaman. And then second, by telling Naaman to simply go wash and be clean. That's it. In a nutshell, hopefully you can see it. Th those two things are a huge part of what the gospel of Jesus is. And that's why this story is such a good picture of it. Because on the one hand, let's be really clear, Naaman's pride is very humbled in this story. Just like our pride is really humbled in the gospel. And it has to be, if we're ever genuinely, personally going to embrace Jesus Christ. Because here, Naaman has to learn. It is not about him, how important he is, how good enough he is, how obedient he is. He can't deserve this washing. Just like the gospel is not about us doing enough or showing our worth to God. And that is humbling. And quickly, let me just say, perhaps you are in here and you really do struggle with that part of the gospel, the true gospel. I mean, perhaps you think, sure, I know God is the Savior, Jesus is the Savior, I'm not. And sure, I know I'm a sinner and all that. And sure, I know I'm saved by grace. But still, you might think who I am and how good I am before God must have something to do with God, why God accepts me and loves me in the gospel. It must. But, but that's why this story is so helpful. The answer to that is No. The gospel is that free, that grace-oriented, that good. And so yes, on the one hand, this story is humbling, but then also on the other hand, this story is incredibly encouraging as well. Isn't it? It's so encouraging because think about it. It's amazing. You and I not only naturally each struggle with pride, but then paradoxically in a way, every single one of us in this room, we also frequently feel that we do not measure up. 
And so when the world tells us that we have to be successful enough to have peace, or when other religions or other versions of so-called Christianity tell us that we have to be obedient enough to be okay with God, that makes us feel hopeless in those moments. And honestly, it, it should. Because we will never be successful enough to have peace that way. Just, just look at the world to see that. And, and then if our religion or if our understanding of our relationship with God is based on being good enough for God, then we will never have a good relationship with the perfectly holy God. So that's not our solution. But again, that is why this story and that's why the true gospel of Jesus is so encouraging. Because being good enough is not the gospel. Instead, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, in history. And he did everything that was needed to be done in his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, to cleanse and bring anyone, literally anyone, back to God now and forever. And he did that all by his grace alone, not because you and I deserve it. And we receive that by simply trusting him alone. That's it. And again, that is all so symbolized here with Naaman, not just earning, not earning anything, but just being simply told to wash and be clean. Just like all of a sudden we turn to the New Testament. What do we see? These simple commands like believe and be saved. Repent or turn and be forgiven. I want to say one last way, just so we're so clear. The truth of the one and only gospel is that yes, like Naaman here, we are prideful and we need to be humbled. And yes, we each need to realize it is not about us. But then Jesus' gospel church is so good because we get to realize that there is something better than we could have ever hoped for. Real forgiveness, real reconciliation with God now and forever. A deepest satisfaction, a deeper satisfaction and purpose in this life, living how we were meant to be, a security and love forever, all in Jesus. And we simply receive that. We receive Jesus. And right away we're forgiven and loved and okay with God and secure now and forever. The gospel is that simple. It's that good of good news. So that's our second main section here. That finally leads us church though to our third and last. And this will be our briefest by far. But we now need to cover this because notice Naaman's story doesn't end there in the Bible. And rightly so. Because you and I should hear all that and kind of feel, wow, if that really did happen to Naaman, which it did, then what? What was his life like after that? Because imagine going through such a humbling, incredible, life-changing experience where you were cleansed of your leprosy. And in a way like that, that would change you, right? Just like coming to God forever through Jesus by grace alone does change us. And so what happens next? Well, now for this final section, we're going to be in all of verses 15 uh, through verse 19. And for the sake of time, we're actually just going to read this all at once now, and then we will talk about it. So look down at all of verses 15 through 19. Then he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, it's Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will, not, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. 
In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. And we'll actually stop there. And so if we had more time, we could dig a lot further into all of that. But on everything there, just briefly notice three main things that go on here with Naaman. Three main things. First, in the first couple of verses, in verses 15 through 16 there, you can see Naaman's a changed man. He really is. The way he talks is totally different than before. As all of a sudden, he now talks about how, quote, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And that's, and that's huge because that shows us some real inner change. Because Naaman here doesn't just think that this God now happens to be one of the gods who he knows can do something for him. Right? That's how the gods were often thought about in religions back then. But he, instead he realizes this is, this is different. This is the only God. There is no one like this. He deep down recognizes what happened with him was really unique. He encountered a God of love and grace and he is the only God. Now, so that's the first thing. And, and I do think that certainly almost shows us, or, or certainly, almost certainly shows us that this is a Naaman's genuine conversion to the Lord by the Spirit. And then second, for Naaman, because of feeling that, notice at the end of verse 15, Naaman then wants to give a present to Elisha. And the reason for that, I think, actually is not negative. I don't think that Naaman at this point is trying to earn his washing. He's already been washed. Instead, I think more likely, it's because Naaman now being so excited and changed, now he wants to give out of thanks, which is, which is a good thing. And yet still notice in this story to further prove the overarching point, Elisha does not accept any gift from Naaman. And why? Well, again, because the main point of this whole story being in God's word is to show us the beauty of God's free grace. Which finally, it's the third thing that happens with Naaman here. This is the most confusing in a way, but it is how Naaman, number one, in verse 17, asked to take a mound of dirt from Israel in order to worship the Lord in Syria. And then number two, how he in verse 18 starts to ask for forgiveness when he's with his master, the king of Syria, and he bows down to this God he now knows is fake, but still he's going to bow down to the God Rimon. And now we don't have time to get into everything that's there. People debate exactly what's going on, but in basic, what we should all take note of is to begin when Elijah then, Elisha then says, go in peace in verse 19, that definitely does not mean that Elisha is condoning everything that Naaman just said. I just want you to know that. He doesn't. Because, for example, we know in the Old Testament elsewhere, it's not okay to bow down to other so-called gods, even if you know they are fake. But then also, what is perhaps most enlightening in those requests from Naaman, I think, is that even though, yes, a lot of that is strange and confusing, still think about it. What is clear for this man, Naaman, is that in both of those requests, and desiring this mound of dirt, and then also asking for forgiveness when bowing down. Notice, Naaman actually is trying to worship the Lord. He is. And now I know. His worship is misplaced and jumbled and misinformed, as apparently he thinks he needs dirt from the land of Israel to worship the Lord, and as he thinks it's okay to bow down to this fake God, but really be worshiping the Lord. And so both of those are not correct. But I do think that even above that, we're supposed to see here, remember, Naaman just came to the Lord. And amazingly, his overarching desire now is to worship the Lord. He just, he just needs some instruction. 
All right, and quickly, I, d- I do think that that being said, implied here then is even an application for you and I, an application for you and I, because think about it. We should read those things from Naaman and think, man, Naaman has such a desire for God, which is amazing. But wow, it's also really clear he needs to be directed and helped in how to worship God. <laughs> and the truth is he does. And now you and I don't know exactly what happened in Naaman's life after this, but we can hope, and I believe it's most likely that in time he did reserve receive further instruction like that he probably did learn more but either way for us again I do think this applies because the truth is in the same way once we receive the gospel by God's grace the spirit does give us a desire for God which is amazing but then also we too do need to be directed and helped and taught on how to worship God from his word meaning none of us can do this alone or can just do this on our own thoughts alone And quickly, just concerning the gospel in the New Testament, I do think that is why always concerning the good news in the New Testament, think about it, it's fascinating. Jesus and his apostles, they don't only come with this individualistic message of conversion and salvation. But then, have you ever noticed how much of the New Testament is actually about this plan of Jesus's that after people are individually saved, we must be part of a local body? a local family, a local church, where we learn God's word together and do this together. I mean, just think about it. After Jesus comes, lives, dies, and rises, Jesus' plan for the church of local churches is basically underlining the whole New Testament. It is basically the point of the whole book of Acts. Almost all the New Testament letters are written to churches. And in the book of Revelation, that's even written to seven churches. And now, I bring all that up Not just because we actually have a new members class coming up on Saturday, which we do. And I would love to see you there if you're not a member here and you're considering what that would mean. Nor do I bring that up just because we have Bible study groups starting up in the next couple weeks. Which are a great way for us to get together and learn about the Lord and see how to worship him together. But even more so, I really bring that up because again, that's what Naaman shows us here. It makes so much sense why it's for our good and it's God's plan that he doesn't just individually save us and wash us. I want you to know that. But he's the one who gives us his word, his church, his people to do that with. So that out of our desire to love him and live for him, we do that together and in how he's told us. And so honestly, for some of you in here, maybe just seeing Naaman's response and hearing that will help you see the importance That's just part of it, of really being a member, a part of a local church, not just coming to church, but actually being a body part of a local body. Well, then for others of us who are already members here at ECC, even seeing Naaman's response should in a way be encouraging to us that we get to do this together. (laughs) Anyway, so all that said, that's our third section, last section of the story here this morning, how Naaman responds. And of course, even more could be said on that. But again, I hope we just see the main point there, and that's how Naaman responds is not only temporarily and outwardly cleansed, but more importantly, this man is forever and internally changed. And and how is he changed? Well, just quickly take note. He's not changed in that he wants to just go from now and be a better man and do better. I just want you to know a lot of people sometimes in their life feel inspired to be better, but that is not necessarily a sign of gospel change. Instead, what is it? Well, notice Naaman is mainly changed in how he views God. He's experienced God's grace. He's seen that God is so good that he's the only God and, that, and then, of course, that it impacts his heart and his life. And brothers and sisters, so it is for us when we embrace the gospel of Jesus. And so, church, that is this passage about Naaman. 
and it shows us the gospel of grace, which quickly now as we close, that all does mean for us just one last time. You and I really need to understand that this is the true gospel. And personally, we need to make sure that this is the gospel of Jesus that we're actually trusting in if we consider ourselves Christians. Because I know you might have some questions, but I did want us to go here in our series first because again, this shows us the humbling aspect of the gospel and also the simplicity of the gospel. Because as for Naaman, he did initially think it was about his obedience and deserving. But he found out it wasn't. All he had to do was go wash and be clean. And again, for us, really, that's it. It is not about you and I being so good or obedient or going to church enough or giving enough. Instead, we trust Jesus. And if we do, we are rescued and secure forever in him. And now when that really happens, that will change our hearts and our lives like we see with Naaman. And so, yes, please, just always remember, please make sure that you're not just saying you trust in Jesus with your lips and not really feeling it in your heart, but still, The main point from God's word this morning was and is, but take heart, Christian. If you do genuinely trust in Jesus, please just know and be reminded this morning that the good news is really this good. It is that God loves us and pursues us. It is that Jesus has come and he did what needed to be done, his life, death, and resurrection, and he's coming again soon, and that all we do is we turn to him and trust him and we are washed forever. That's the good news. That's the God of the good news. And so for us, let's all leave here really believing that afresh or perhaps for the first time in your life this morning. Let's be thankful for God's grace towards us and then let's love him and live for him because of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.